0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say we have Fergal McGarry on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Rising, Ireland, Easter 1916. Sometimes when you lose, you win. This was the case for the relatively small group of Irish Republicans who decided to launch an assault on what was then British-controlled Ireland. They were in relatively desperate straits as their enemies. The nationalists had succeeded in gaining a kind of home rule for Ireland This really took the wind out of the Republicans' sails. So, as I say in desperation, they mounted a rebellion that they knew could not succeed. It did not succeed, at least militarily, but it managed to start a kind of sea change in Irish politics, one that led to the War for Independence and the Civil War, and then finally the declaration of an independent Ireland in the South. Fergal does a terrific job of telling this story, uh, and he does so on the basis of some really interesting new sources that he talks about in the interview. So without further ado, here it is. Hi, Fergal. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. It's very hot here in the center of the United States. It's going to be 95 degrees today. What's it like there in Belfast?
1: It's actually unusually uh, pleasant. It's, It's it's quite warm. It's probably uh, 20 degrees, 22 degrees. Uh, so for, it's about as good as it gets, actually, for yeah. our summer. So That's uh, great. I'm not complaining.
0: That's great. I should tell our listeners that we have Fergal McGarry on the show today, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Rising Ireland, Easter 1916. As I was telling Fergal in the pre-interview, I used to live in Ireland. I had the great good fortune of teaching for a year at the University of Limerick, and I was treated very well there, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. And uh, although I'm a Russian historian, uh, I realized that I could learn a lot if I just listened to Irish people in pubs about Irish history. And so when I saw this um, book in the Oxford University Press catalog, I grabbed it quickly and uh, called Fergal and said, I, I must interview you. And he was uh, kind enough to agree to my terms, kind of on short notice, really. So I want to I thank you very much. And I had to cancel once. I'm sorry about that. but. Uh, my kids no to be it's, a, fed. it's a
1: pleasure to be on the show.
0: <laughs> it's, it's my pleasure to have you. So Fergal, why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Um well I was born in, in Bray, which is south of Dublin, um and I uh studied history and um Greek and Roman civilization at um UCD and uh, uh currently I work at Queen's University Belfast where I've lived um for the last eight years or so. And uh, I I teach um, modern Irish history, um, and I've specialised in that really since, since um, studying for my PhD um, at Trinity College, um, Dublin, back in the 1990s.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a quick question about that. Uh, I can only imagine that the decision to study modern Irish history in Ireland is a somewhat difficult one, in the sense that... Uh, there's still a lot going on, and and I was thinking, you know, we here, here in America, you know, we said a lot of American historians, I'm not one of them, but uh, the, the, our history is not that consequential. People don't fight about it as much as they do in Ireland. What was it like studying or deciding to study modern Irish history?
1: Um, well, in uh, I, I would have gone to UCD in the um, for my BA uh, my undergraduate studies in the late 1980s. Um, so Irish history, in, in, I mean, I would have studied a history degree rather than Irish history, but a fair bit of it would have been composed of Irish history. And certainly Irish history was very, um, it was contentious and very politicised because of the troubles um, the uh, provisional IRAs campaign was still ongoing. The, the peace process didn't really start in the mid-1990s. Um, so certainly there was you know, there was a lot of I suppose there was a lot of um, it was a lot of tensions associated with Irish history and it was also quite uh, divisive in that period it was probably still the last phase of what became known as the, uh, the revisionist controversy as well, many countries have their own revisionist controversies but the, the Irish one was particularly kind of uh, contentious it would have sort of emerged in the late 1960s and really gone on from the 1970s and 1980s so it would have been you know pretty much during the same period as as Republican violence was going on um, in Northern Ireland so there would have been a sense I suppose that some people would have felt the need to take stands it would have been uh, it would have been quite difficult, I suppose, to, to teach, particularly courses relating to Republican violence and campaigns for independence and so on, um, you know, completely dispassionately. Um, particularly because, I suppose, the the IRA at that time um, saw the good deal of legitimacy from, you know, from the history of the revolutionary mm-hmm. period. So I think even the most kind of apathetic um, undergraduate student would have been, would have been aware that, that, that the history that they were studying was politicised, contentious, controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that, so that, I mean, in a sense that's kind of added quite a lot of interest um, to it and the, the, the context of, of, you know, how Irish history has been taught and how it's received has, has continued to change quite dramatically then because of the events that, um, that mm-hmm. followed but I'm sure we'll probably touch on that later. Oh,
0: we will, but yes. The, oh, yeah. the, rising
1: oh. is a, the rising is a good example of how, um, you know, it, every decade or every generation, these things are looked at quite differently, and people sort of read different things um, into it. So certainly, yeah, there would have been a, a strong sense of uh, that, that That Irish history is something that's not just in the past.
0: Uh-huh. And why did you decide to write a book about the rising?
1: Uh, well, short answer,
0: I was commissioned to
1: do it. Uh, by <laughs> University Press. I have to be honest, our whole man. But, um, uh, uh,
0: I'm liking you the, more and more. <laughs>
1: <laughs> at, at that time, I was sort of coming to the end of a, a project which was, uh, actually I wasn't coming towards I was in the middle of a project about Owen Duffy, uh, and a, a, a sort of a controversial um, figure, a, a fascist in the 1930s um, and uh, I had nothing specifically planned and uh, I was asked to write this book and to be honest it wouldn't have been a topic that I uh, naturally, would have would, would have thought of because again, so just just going back to childhood and and uh, the the sense of Irish history that you carry around with you. Uh, 1916 would have been something that every Irish school child was very familiar with. And it, it would have been um, you know a bit of an old chestnut that would have been mm-hmm. drummed into from from, from a, for a long period. I mean, for myself, I can remember um, you know going to um, post primary school. And having school teachers who would, who would teach you endlessly about Patrick Pearse in 1916, and in a way actually, which is which, which is quite off-putting. You know, I remember being uh, having my knuckles wrapped for not being able to memorise the names, of the signatories of the, the proclamation. And um, so it was a kind of uh, you know the attitudes to the Easter Rising were sort of still bound, up I suppose, with, with uh, the, the, the still very strong sense of a kind of um, uh, a Catholic nationalism that had become very much part of the, the, the orthodoxy of the state and part of independent Ireland, so if, if anything I would have had it probably would have been carrying through, carrying a bit of this baggage, which, which writing the book has helped me to to, to, to work through because, um, you know, uh, largely the legacy of The Rising has of course nothing to do with the um, the, the people which which took part in it. My, my other concern, I suppose, about um, writing a history of the Easter Rising at that time was that it had been done pretty well um, by a couple of books. Um, Irish historians had actually ignored the Easter Rising for a long, long period, but but this had changed really in the 1990s um, and there was one or two very good um, studies um, which had come out. So really there were very few questions left about the military aspects of the Rising, what had actually happened. Um, The wider political context in terms of particularly the the actions of of Britain and British policy um, had also been... Um, received a lot of attention. So one concern I had at the time was well, well, what, what more is there to say and um, I'm sure we'll get on to it later but because of the availability of new sources particularly the Bureau of Military History um, I found actually that there was another story that could be told um, which
0: was fortunate. Well and much to your credit you say that the uh, military aspect of the rising has been well covered and uh, I, I appreciated that a lot but i would want to talk a little bit about this source that you just mentioned because it is a pretty remarkable source and it is a uh, totally bookworthy. um and also it recently became available and uh, maybe you could just tell the story of this
1: sure and um, actually just despite its title the bureau of Military history i mean i've mined it extensively actually for, for non-military things you know pr- primarily um but just to give you a little bit of the background, um, in the 1940s, uh, uh, the Irish government set up um, a project to basically record the memories of, of the, the generation of Republicans, revolutionaries who had taken part in the Easter Rising. And they were beginning to, to die. Uh, so uh, it, it, quite an extensive project was set up um, involving military investigators um, from the National Army, and they interviewed um uh, well, they recorded around eighteen hundred um witness statements so they created a, a, a massive um, archive. It's about 40 archival boxes um, with um, a huge amount of statements. Some of them quite long and quite detailed uh, with people who were involved in um, the IRB, the Irish Volunteers, uh, Nafina, Cumann na and the other revolutionary organisations. And basically each one of these individuals was asked to record what, what became known as a witness statement. So it was a, a first-person testimony in which they answered a, a, a set kind of... Um, array of of questions asking them how did they enter national life Um, why did they become politicised, what what did they actually do within the revolutionary organisations and so on Uh, and then I suppose one particularly interesting aspect of the collection is after they recorded this huge amount of information uh, it was um, put under lock and key And um, uh, held by the state, um, closed to public access until the last of the um, people who had given witness statements um, had passed away. So, so the statements actually only became available in I think it was 2002. So, um, possibly I would argue it's probably the most important individual single source that we have about the irish revolution and amazingly enough then it, it just kind of enters the public domain um you know 80 or so 90 years um, after the events itself so so obviously there's a lot of difficulties with a source like this because it's, it's oral history and it's oral history from the removal of several decades. But on the other hand, there's really just, there's nothing like it um, in terms of the level of intimate detail you get and, and the, the, the size of the sample. That's um, It's a significant proportion of people who actually took part in 1916 and um, give witness statements. So there's quite a lot of problems with it, which, which I go into in the book. But um, it, it really is an exceptional source and it's really, it's, it's around this, individual source that I built the the book largely
0: yeah and I was going to say when I was reading about the source I just uh, I turned to my wife and I said boy was this guy lucky (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that
1: was my thought too, because I, I'd actually agreed to write the book um, before I knew about the source, but before it had become available, um, and so it, it coincided uh, quite nicely, and it turned out that there was something new, or some new things to say after all about the rise.
0: I just think it's an incredible source. I mean, it, it could be mind and mind and mind. I mean, I, you know, the, after the Russian Revolution, nobody went around. Well, maybe they did. I don't know. We don't know about it, but uh, uh, asking people... Uh, About their experiences. Also, there's a lot. One kind of interesting thing about the source is that uh, I I don't know what the motives of the people who collected the source were, but there's a lot of unflattering stuff in there.
1: Yeah, I mean, just on the first point, I don't think there is any international equivalent for such... I mean, given the relatively small scale of the Irish Revolution and the amount of people who took part in it, I don't think there's any comparable source of that kind of quantity and quality and scale that exists. And so I think it's actually very... Interesting to people who, who, who are interested in revolutions and, and how they happen, and politicization, and uh, uh, radicalism, uh, and issues um, like that. Sorry, what was the second point you raised there, Marshall?
0: Pardon me. My second point was uh, about the uh, unflattering stuff in the in the archive itself.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's in some ways that's uh, a, a cause for concern because while the information and in, uh, by and large in the witness statements, I think is 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 um, um, often. Often uh, reliable in the sense that people aren't uh, being misleading. Uh, there's various problems with it. I mean, the, the, probably the single biggest problem is that um, a civil war took place in Ireland in 1922. So the the, the this very small. Um, uh, unified revolutionary movement divided into uh, and never reconciled. So people who were giving witness statements were talking about events in which uh, they had been fighting alongside people who, who had subsequently um, perhaps um, killed their comrades or even even family members. So the, the, the shadow of the civil war is just uh, one of quite, quite a lot of things in which you have to read quite carefully when you're looking at witness witness statements. Uh, having said that, I think people who were particularly aggrieved because of, because of the more people who maybe were, had become a, opposed to the, the government or governments of the 1940s were probably more likely not to give a witness statement than to to give something that would be um, deliberately intended to to, to mislead. So there, there's there's lots of unflattering things in it, but it's it's also true to say there's lots of things which are which are glossed over. And I think um, you mentioned earlier about what a great source it is. I mean, one way in which it's it's going to be a great source, I think, is in looking at historical memory and how historical memory evolves and how it's shaped because you have a lot of people in the 1940s talking about what they did in the 1920s or earlier. And there's, there's lots of areas which really aren't touched on in the kind of detail that... Um, they should be so. For example, when people talk about um, violence, they tend not to talk about questionable killings, mm-hmm. such as the, the killings of uh, informers, uh, maybe sectarian motives that would have been at play. So I think you have to read the witness statements quite carefully from that point of view. You, naturally enough, a lot of people will talk about those things which which they're most comfortable talking about, and and, and will not sort of um, will gloss over other more 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 dubious aspects of what happened um, in the in the past.
0: I, I just uh, marvel at anybody who can remember with any detail at all something that happened 20 years ago. I, I can't. <laughs> I don't know about uh, you, but I, uh, I can't.
1: I, I, I struggled with what I did last month. So, uh, <laughs> uh, But uh, it's actually something I've, 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 I've thought about because... Um, it, it, you, <laughs> obviously you have to be a bit sceptical towards the sources and you are getting these remarkably well-remembered events. Um, and I have to say, after working on the collection for, for, for quite a few years, I, I think you can, you can can you can see weaknesses and strengths so, quite often people will speak confidently about um, the day that they did something or the date, or they'll talk about who was with them, or they'll talk about numbers. And very often, when you can check these facts, they're actually wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, the things that I think are much more kind of authoritative is how people felt at the time, how they experienced something, um, their sense of what was going through their mind. I mean, they're really excellent in terms of mentality, but in terms of um, you know, accuracy, I think there's a whole lot of things that you need to be quite careful about. But I mean, one advantage of the witness statements is well, there's just so many of them. I mean, you can cross-check dozens of statements, for instance, in the different garrisons uh, that the that the rebels served in, um, uh, you can cross-check um, large numbers of statements for particular um, counties um, or particular time periods. So there is quite a lot of, you know, there's quite a lot of um, things which you can do to to make sure that they're not being um, as, as as misleading as you would expect with with, with memory. But again, I suspect that because this collection is so unique and it's it, because of its size, that it probably will be mined in very interesting ways by oral historians and historians of uh, memory to to, to, um, you know, to to try and tr- uh, look at um, how and why some um, distortions um, do occur.
0: Yeah, it's it's a. I think you could spend a good portion of a scholarly career on a source <laughs> like that. Um, the uh, let's let's start talking about the history a little bit and. One of the things that I recalled from my time in Ireland was that um, there are ordinary English words, and then when you put them in the Irish historical context, they tend to mean different things. Uh, There's a whole nomenclature for uh, Irish history, especially modern Irish history. So I wanted to go through just some terms so that the people that listen to this podcast will understand what we mean. So uh, first of all, there's this thing called home rule. What is home rule?
1: (laughs) Right, yeah, well, um, Ireland since uh, 1800 had uh, been um, under uh, British rule and effect. It was part of the United Kingdom. Um, I think sometimes uh, overlooked by, by some Irish people and, and certainly some people abroad. Um, Ireland in 1916 was, uh, it was, it was a democracy. Ireland was part of the UK state. Now, of course, most uh, people who lived in Ireland were nationalists. About um, three quarters. Um, But the the vast majority of nationalists um, uh, hoped for a moderate um, uh, address of of their grievances, and they hoped for a Home Rule Parliament. Under the the, um, John Redmond's Irish Parliamentary Party, nationalists um, hoped that they they could could secure a parliament for Ireland, which would keep Ireland within the United Kingdom. This isn't something particularly they wanted, but this is something they accepted um, as as, as necessary from from the British end. Um, So they would accept the the devolution of autonomy, essentially, um, to Ireland. Um, And that was really the the, state of play by about 1910, 1911. Uh, And at that point, um, things began to change um, very rapidly. Um, The uh, Irish Party, who who represented most Irish nationalists, um, held the balance of um, Par at Westminster. Um, Lloyd George's uh, Liberal Party needed their support uh, to um, in, in his contest with uh, the Tories in the House of Lords, who were, who were blocking his People's Budget. So, in return for Irish nationalists um, keeping um, the, uh, the As- Asquiths—sorry, not George—Asquith's Liberal government in power, um, homeowners uh, were essentially promised um, that a Home Rule would, would come about. Uh, the liberal government's decision then to bring in home rule um, starts a, 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 a profound uh, reaction um, in, in Ireland, particularly in Ulster, as Ulster unionists, and the, the minority tradition in Irish politics, um, radicalise and organise and set up a, a paramilitary force, the Ulster Volunteers, uh, to fight home rule, and it's that kind of constitutional and political crisis that comes about from from what is essentially a very moderate. Measure um, the Home Rule Bill, um, which sees things spiral out of control. So the the people who are responsible for for bringing about uh, the Easter Rising, Irish Republicans or Irish Separatists, um, really represented just a, a, a very small minority, mm-hmm. political opinion, up up to um, 1916. Mm-hmm. And of course, the the importance of 1916 is that is that is that violence even though it's representative of only a, a very small section of nationalists, fundamentally changes the picture and, and brings about a groundswell of popular support for republicanism. So one thing which um, the, uh, the Easter Rising does is it sort of it, it kills home rule.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me go on to the, the second term after home rule and that is uh, the uh, word nationalist as opposed to republican. These mean one thing in American yeah. English but they mean something quite different really in the Irish context. What are, what are those two things?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, perhaps the simplest way um, of thinking about this is um, most um, Irish Catholics uh, were nationalists, uh, which is they, they, they wanted some form of independence for Ireland. Most Irish Protestants were unionists, that is, they supported the continuance of the Act of Union, um, which had come in in 1800. Now, in terms of thinking then more about Irish nationalism, um Normally, it's spoken of it as being sort of two, two factions, uh, constitutional nationalists, that is, nationalists who supported the attainment of independence or movement in that direction through constitutional political means. Uh, and that is the really important um, tradition for, for, for much of sort of post-1800 Irish history. So um, popular nationalism really comes about under Daniel O'Connell, and the great constitutional nationalist leader in the 1830s. Um, the causes taken further by Parnell in the 1880s and John Redmond um, by the, the time of the Easter Rising. Um, now, there's also a kind of a minority nationalist tradition, which is um, separatism or uh, republicanism. Uh, and again, that has a long lineage. I mean, we could go back to the 1798 Rising, for example, which, which is when republicanism first become, begins to become uh, a, a popular movement in Ireland with, with um, Wolf Tone and the United Irishmen who organise um, against British rule and mount an unsuccessful rising. So by the time we get to 1916, there is uh, a republican or a separatist uh, tradition in Ireland, which looks back to that tradition of violent revolutions, violent revolutions against British rule, uh, in 1798, uh, in 1803 with Robert Emmet, in 1848 with the Young Ireland movement, uh, and in 1867 uh, with, with the Fenians. But um, I suppose that, you know one important point about the, the republican or separatist or physical force tradition is that while they certainly had an emotional resonance with a lot of Irish people, they were never politically very um, popular. The first time they sort of achieved significant political um, success, with the possible exception of the, the Fenians in the 1860s, is only after the Easter Rising. And we were talking a little bit earlier about you know, Northern Ireland, and one of the issues there is that um, the use of violence by a, a small group of people with no democratic uh, mandate, which is um, subsequently sort of endorsed by the Irish people, it, you know, became something very problematic with, with, with the Troubles.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's go on to uh, another. Um, let's actually set the stage a little bit with some players, uh, to put it that way, to use a theatrical metaphor. Uh, I was <laughs> in your book, one of the things I, I liked, and There's other things I read about um, the way the British saw Irish radicalism. Whenever anybody did anything that the British didn't like, uh, they called it uh, Sinn Fein. <laughs> Whether it was Sinn Fein or not, I think similarly with Americans, they, they see anything that involves uh, politics or violence in Ireland, and they think, um, uh, and, and they they think uh, the IRA. There was no IRA at this point, right? There was. Yeah, the, I mean, so there was the Irish Brotherhood. Is that what it was called? Yeah, I mean the IRA is really I
1: suppose born out of 1916. Um, yeah. So one one group of key players would be the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Uh, and they're also known as the Fenians. And um, the Fenians actually come from America. Um, they're, they're, they're a, they're Dude, largely, they're,
0: oh, tell that they're, story. Please tell that story. <laughs> um,
1: they're, they're largely a product of sort of um, post-famine mass Irish emigration to America um, and indeed around the world, particularly to other um, uh, imperial countries such as Australia and New Zealand. Um, so one of the really fascinating things about Irish nationalism, it's, it's, it's partly a product of um, Irish nationalists abroad. So it's, uh, the Fenians are founded in 1858 um, in America and in, in Dublin. In Ireland, they're known as the Irish Republican Brotherhood. In America, they're known as the Fenians, but it's, it's, it's that name which gradually becomes more popular. Um, so you get in America, um, um, you know, financial support, um, an organizational base for Irish Republicans, but perhaps most powerfully, a sort of... Um, um, a kind of uh, a, a, a popular form of uh, republicanism, which is deeply anti-English, um, very insurrectionary, very committed to physical force, um, and that remains that that link between sort of um, uh, Irish and American um, uh, physical force remains important all all the way up to 1916 and of course beyond. But to get back to um, so the IRB are there as one group, um, and it's the IRB who who, who plan. Be the minority within the IRB who, who planned Easter Rising. But we also have Sinn Fein. Uh, and Sinn, Sinn Fein were founded in 1905 by Arthur Griffith. And what Griffith was really trying to do was to, to try and find some kind of middle way between physical force republicanism and constitutional nationalism. Um, his problem with constitutional nationalism was that he felt that something that aimed so low that he, um, could never really claim to uh, to, uh, to represent um, legitimate or genuine um, independence or sovereignty. On the other hand, his, his, his problem with republicanism was quite interesting. He just made the simple point that Britain is just too, is just too powerful and it's a country which is, become more powerful since the failure of 19th century revolutions. Um, So he felt there's really no point in having a physical force um, uprising. So Sinn Féin came about as um, a, a way of sort of a triangulation, we would now say, between physical force nationalism, which was seen as very commendable and, 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 and um, you know kind of a, a principled stance, but futile, and constitutional nationalism, which was seen as as basically um, you know too much of a compromise of, of nationalism. Um, and what's often kind of forgotten, because the Easter Rising becomes known as the Sinn Fein rebellion, is that the Sinn Fein party actually you know, didn't support <laughs> um, the, the Easter Rising. As you say, it was this, uh, it was this habit of Referring to troublesome Republicans as Sinn Feiners, which 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 um, caused a confusion. But what does happen um, by 1917, by 1918, is that um, a newly emergent Sinn Fein. Does become a Republican Party, which sort of represents the aspirations of the Easter Rising, and uh, so the Easter Rising, in a sense, um, you know, it creates that new Republican Sinn Féin Party, uh-huh. which which goes on to to achieve Irish independence
0: mm-hmm. um, in the south of the country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the people that planned the uprising and why they planned it. Uh, I want to ask a background question first, though. What was, um, uh, and my ignorance here is great. Uh, what, what were the Irish called on to do by the British in World War One?
1: Um, well. Uh, not too much in the sense that the the the, the big um, crisis or potential crisis would have been conscription um, uh, when when uh, the Great War uh, broke out. Um, in Ireland and Britain. Um, the reaction in Ireland, despite the Home Rule crisis, which I'd mentioned, which saw a lot of tensions between Unionists or Loyalists and Nationalists, um, generally speaking, Nationalists were pretty enthusiastic about the war efforts. Um, one reason for that, I think, was that John Redmond's Irish party had secured a Home Rule bill. Um, and uh, the, the resolution was that the Home Rule bill was put in the statute book, but given that it was a time of uh, war, Home Rule wouldn't be introduced until after the war. So from the point of view of many Irish nationals who looked at that, this thing which they have been campaigning for for, for three decades this, this, this big demand had been met so there was quite, quite a bit of goodwill um, towards Britain um, John Redmond for, for various reasons which have been much um, debated um, essentially decided to throw his lot in with the British government um, during the Great War, so he encouraged members of the Irish Volunteers, which was the main kind of nationalist um, volunteer or paramilitary force, um, to join up uh, and serve with Britain. Uh, and it's really at this point that constitutional nationalism begins to become a little bit unstuck uh, because Redmond is seen as really um, too close to Britain and too enthusiastic um, uh, about the war. And what begins to happen, I suppose, within a year or two of the war uh, beginning is you know, reports come back about the reality of life in the Western Front um, Uh, fears begin to grow that conscription is going to be introduced in Ireland for for the reason that it had been introduced um, Mm -hmm. in Britain. And suddenly um, Sinn Féiners or um, Irish Republicans um, begin to um, get a bit of an opportunity. The wind begins to get behind their sails in terms of um, using opposition to the wars as a popular cause. But... um, Britain, it should be noted, don't introduce conscription, but it's just the fear that they will um, uh, is something which, which which begins to sort of turn the tide a little bit. But most people would have felt that right up until Easter 1916, um, Republicans were still very much a, a small minority and, and the Home Rule Party still seemed firmly in control of, of, uh, of nationalism.
0: Mm-hmm. And why did they plan the rising? Was it because they were actually going through a kind of a hard time? And it seems to me that the... Uh, as the Soviets used to say, the constellation of forces was moving against the uh, Republicans at this time, that they were basically desperate.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, this is a massively kind of uh, uh, debated um, subject. Um, I suppose if you take the long view, I mean, Fenianism had been a popular movement in the 1860s. Um, And by the time we get to sort of the um, early 20th century, that kind of physical force separatist uh, revolutionary tradition had really become become to look increasingly anachronistic uh, and it was not taken seriously by many people. And there was actually very, very small numbers of Fenians um, in existence. So. The, the kind of people who, like uh, Sean McDermott and Tom Clark, um, who would organise Easter Rising. I mean, they're a really tiny, unrepresentative group, but on the other hand, they're you know fanatical, zealous, um, exceptionally um, disciplined and well organised. And they've learned a lot of lessons from past Fenian conspiracies going wrong, um, and uh, so, so they. they, they, they um, carry out the planning for the rising uh, with, with quite some skill. In terms of what motivated them, I think uh, to, to a certain extent it would have been a realisation that um, Irish republicanism was beginning to, um, to, to, to dwindle away. I mean, one important point would have been that um, for all the kind of nationalist propaganda that, that presented Britain as a malign entity and so on, um, you know, Britain had responded um, increasingly, progressively to to Irish grievances. So, um, in the 19th century, the great Irish grievances would have been um, the, the the refusal to give Catholic emancipation. You know, the fact that inequality was um, basically enshrined um, in. Um, uh, uh, British law in, in Ireland, but um, that uh, issue of Catholic emancipation had been addressed in the 1830s. Um, so, th- so, the only other really big issue that would have um, existed in the 19th century would have been um, the land settlement, which was the fact that the, the great majority of the land was owned by um, uh, landlords, many of them Anglo-Irish, who were seen um, basically as a, as a as a foreign usurper in terms of the, the nationalist uh, you know conception of things, and again very importantly, in the 1880s, the land question was, was largely being um, settled. A series of land acts come in in the late 19th and early 20th century, and by the time we get to, to 19th, the eve of 1916, most um, Catholic uh, uh, tenant farmers um, now owned their own land. So Phoenix, I think, would have been aware that the, the, the really big grievances that republicanism had fed off had been uh, addressed, and now that the last big grievance was being addressed, which was, of course, um, Home Rule, it now looked that there would be some kind of Settlement, which would um, bring back um, a parliament to Ireland. So, so what I argue um, strongly in the book is that the Easter Rising is is essentially it's a, it's a kind of a last throw of the dice by um, you know very frustrated um, individuals who are aware. Um, that this is probably the, the, the last real chance that they will have to um, uh, gain popular support for what they see as, as, as a genuine kind of independence movement. And um, it had always been part of Fenian thinking, um, I mean, going back to the foundation of the movement in the 1850s, that the only way in which um, Irish revolutionaries could hope to, to win freedom would be by having uh, a, a, an uprising. At a time of international war, and mm-hmm. again, that, that thinking actually goes back all the way to the 18th century, and, and arguably back to the 17th century. So, Fenians, many of them being, I mean, being um, perfectly intelligent and astute individuals, realised that it was only with a major ally and with, with Britain distracted in a major war that they could ever hope to uh, to, to militarily um, achieve much um, with, with, a, with a revolution. Um, and these people would have believed genuinely that any um, attempt to um, pursue independence through democratic means would have been um, doomed to failure um, because they believed that that, that Britain would not have been willing willing to concede the substance of independence. So it comes back to this great big um, um, fault line between constitutional nationalists and uh, separatists. Constitutional nationalists argued that incrementally using democratic methods some kind of um, meaningful progress towards independence could be achieved uh, and Republicans believe that that the only thing that Britain would understand would be armed violence and of course that you know the aspects of that debate resonate all all the way up into the the recent um, uh, troubles um, uh, in Northern Ireland so it's something which is is, um, an argument which is is, is very controversial um, you know for for that reason. Mm The other point I might make maybe about Fenian uh, Fenian thinking during the Easter Rising is I I think by and large uh, the Fenian leaders would have accepted that it was unlikely that their uprising could be successful. Uh, They did have links with Germany, they did hope for German arms to arrive on the eve of the uh, Rising Um, but if you look at the strength of the movement it was 10 or 12,000 individuals Uh, Not terribly well trained, not terribly well armed. um, And it's really inconceivable to see how militarily it could have presented much of a challenge to the forces of Britain, which which at that time had hundreds of thousands um, of men in arms um, on the Western Front. So that has led to a big debate as to, well, what, what exactly did the rebels Want uh, want to achieve? Um, You know, did did they actually want to take part? Did they think that it was possible to take part, even for a short um, period, or was it just really a kind of a spectacular um, gesture? Uh, What Lenin, I think, would have called um, propaganda of the deed. Mm -hmm. Um, And and what, what I argue in my book, relying very much again on these witness statements, is that there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that the thinking amongst Fenian leaders, not the rank and file, but the leaders, was very much about making a a credible gesture, um, one that could... Um, see uh, the Republican tradition uh, survive—one that would see it kind of um, having a degree of um, self-respect and integrity, um, because this is a period in which Republicans haven't risen since the 1860s, and uh, a lot of them are sort of criticised as, as as blowhards and um, you know people who are willing to talk about freedom but not do anything. So, so I argue that that, that, that largely the Easter rising, at least for the leaders, is 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 about it's an assertion um, of, of credibility to say um, the separate tradition still exists um, it's still willing to, um, to to fight for freedom and the thinking would have been that that um, the consequences of rising no matter how militarily um, uh, unlikely victory seemed would have been better than the consequences of doing nothing which probably would have seemed the, the death of the Irish Republican tradition and these people uh, would have believed the death of Irish nationality itself um, their the great fear is that Irish people are going to end up like Welsh people or Scottish people that, that they will no longer be um, properly Irish that they will just become um, a part of Britain and while that thinking has been very strongly criticised by all sorts of uh, people um, it, 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 one would have to say that, that a, a large uh, amount of that thinking actually holds up in the sense that the Easter Rising does do many of the things um, which they believe that it, that it might do, even if it didn't pan out exactly the way in which they had, had initially hoped.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how did, well, let me ask this, how, w- when was the Rising first proposed and how did uh, the um, Irish Brotherhood prepare for it?
1: Uh, The the decision to rise in principle was made very quickly, um, very soon after the outbreak of the Great War. Uh, and again, some people have described this as almost a Pavlovian response, you know, England involved in a major war, uh, Irish revolutionaries must rise. Um, and I suppose the interesting uh, um, thing about the point at which the, the IRB leadership, the IRB Supreme Council ag- agreed to rise is that really circumstances couldn't have been much worse for Irish separatists because in the autumn of 1914, by the autumn of 1914, Irish nationalism had split, the Irish volunteer movement, um, which had been the large paramilitary movement set up in response to the to volunteers, um, split, and, and, and well over 90%, probably about 95% of Irish volunteers um, backed John Redmond's Irish party. So. The Irish volunteers were reduced from a force of maybe 150, 180,000 down to about five or ten thousand men. So the decision um, at which it's, the point at which it's decided to to have a rising, um, seems to have been made um, with very little thought to whether such a rising would be, you know, a, a credible from a from a military um, point of view. Um, how the IRB then go about proceeding? Uh, Tabor Rising is uh, probably a pretty good masterclass class in, in, in bringing about a successful um, rebellion. Uh, the first thing they do is they, they uh, uh, maintain an incredible degree of secrecy. Um, about the rising and previous Irish re- rebellions had, had notoriously been um, uh, failures because um, the British government had been very aware of what they were doing and the various revolutionary movements had been infiltrated so the IRB Supreme Council w- once they decided to uh, have a rising in principle appointed a military council which which at first involved I think Two individuals, then three, and then it, it, it rises to, about to six or seven individuals. And, and these people planned the rising, you know, um, uh, in, in, in extreme secrecy. Um, and their plan was predicated on um, using the, the wider Irish Volunteer body as the kind of foot soldiers of that rebellion. So the IRB um, uh, infiltrated the, the, uh, the leadership of the Irish Volunteer movement, which was a more um, a less Republican less militant body but all the same a nationalist enough body and um, Irish volunteers were um, basically expected um, to uh, obey um, the IRB uh, when, when the Rising uh, was to be launched. So there's, a, there's a, an incredible degree of secrecy and perhaps also a you know slightly amoral dimension um, to this also because right up until the Rising itself, um, the volunteers were never told what was going to uh, happen. Um, the original plan was simply that the Irish volunteers would be mobilised on Easter Sunday and their IRB leaders would, would start fighting and the volunteers were expected just to just to row in, so um, it, one could be critical of many aspects of this, but certainly um, it proved to be an effective way of um, uh, organizing rebellion involving thousands of people without word uh, leaking out and it 's not until relatively late in the day that um, opponents of the rebellion within nationalism and also the, the British government began to get uh, get wind of it mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. and how did they get arms?
1: And well they didn't have many arms to be honest. Uh they, they, they would use different. Uh, the Irish Volunteers had been in existence since uh, 1913, and um, at that point, one could one could purchase um, the odd gun, or rifle, but it was it was a bit of a legal grey area. Um, volunteers would steal guns from British soldiers. Sometimes they would buy them. Sometimes they would trade them for for, for drink. Uh, sometimes they would um, pick fights and just uh, grab them. Uh, they would also uh, they they made uh, homemade uh, bombs. Uh, they made. Uh, um, pikes in foundries, uh, but to, to be honest, all this didn't didn't amount to a very credible um, military threat. And I mean, one of the reasons in which why the Irish Volunteers were sometimes uh, ridiculed was because they would train with wooden staves and that kind of thing. Um, and if you compare them to the to the Ulster Volunteers, um, which had much stronger links, for obvious reasons, to the British military, um, th- that was a much uh, more militarily uh, and formidable body with, with a much higher number of arms. Now, having said that, the Irish volunteers did um, organise an arms shipment, um, uh, so they smuggled arms um, which had been purchased in Europe but again the numbers aren't huge you're talking about um, 1,500 rifles or so um, nothing of the kind that could that could uh, make a significant uh, difference so that was uh, yet another one of the, the sort of the military question marks over the rebellion um, now the one uh, um, great hope was that uh, the IRB's contacts with Germany would see uh, uh, Germany send over an armed ship with Turkey 40,000 rifles and, and that in Indeed, it was planned, um, but uh, the attempt failed um, just shortly before the Easter Rising. And In fact, it was the interception of that ship um, by uh, the British authorities which really left the cat out of the bag in terms of uh, an uprising. So... One can say that the, the, the rising went ahead, um, albeit postponed on Easter Monday, um, with no real possibility of success because there wasn't a large army uh, and there wasn't a large uh, body of arms you know, for, for that army to use. Mm-hmm.
0: What did the, Germ- well, the Germans were approached by the IRB, is that right?
1: That's right, it- through, yeah. through America again, uh, in fact, through the IRB's uh, links in America. And, and what, did course-
0: the Germans- what did the Germans think of this?
1: And it's not it's not quite clear. I mean, the the uh, the I R B uh, presented uh, a, a plan to Germany, and some people within Germany um, seem to have been mildly impressed by the idea that Germany, for for, for relatively little input, could. Uh, support arising which could cause Britain huge problems in its own backyard. Um, but what the rebels were asking was for really serious military logistical support. I mean, they wanted German officers, German soldiers, um, you know, uh, a lot of German arms and so on. Uh, and the German uh, military and political authorities never really took um, the IRB um, that seriously. So uh, there was some kind of mild support. There was a, um, a sort of a diplomatic understanding that a republic would be um, recognized and so on. But uh, ultimately, uh, Germany felt the whole thing was um, unlikely to proceed. In fact, one of, one of the sort of well-known subplots of the East Horizon then is that Sir Roger Casement, um, uh, who had been in Germany, trying to persuade the Germans to support uh, the rising uh, um, actually returns home um, just days before the rising to take place in a desperate attempt to call the Rising off because he believes without proper German support um, the, the Rising is, is doomed to failure. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Casement was, was captured. This is really when the, when the Rising becomes, the, the, the planned Rising becomes widely known. Uh, Casement was, was, was captured and, and subsequently um, executed as a traitor. And neither Casement nor the British authorities felt like making much of the fact that he had actually, uh, by that point, um, opposed the rebellion.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, let's go to the rebellion itself. Uh, It's put off a day. It starts on Monday. Is that right?
1: It's, yes, it's, it's, uh, the plans are sort of uh, um, uh, revealed on um, Easter Sunday with captured and so on. And uh, the leader of the Irish volunteers, Owen McNeill, um delivers a countermanding order or ordering that no Irish volunteers should uh, come out to March on, on the Easter Sunday. So that really stops the rising dead in its tracks. Um, the separatist leaders in Dublin want to go on and, and they really make the, the only other decision that's available to them at that time, which is they decide to simply um, postpone for one day and, and rise on Easter Monday, so a, a rising that originally maybe could have expected to have ten, twelve thousand men backing it uh, ended up um, involving about a thousand people, mm-hmm. um, rising maybe to about fifteen hundred later in the week. And instead of being nationwide, was largely confined to the capital in Dublin.
0: Yeah, that's right. So they uh, march into the center of Dublin, and Americans who have been to Dublin will recognize some of the landmarks in what follows. I think uh, what they, they go to uh, Dublin Castle and almost take it
1: yeah they uh, they uh occupy uh five or six um, large buildings in the centre of Dublin, which are conforming roughly to a circle um, in the in the very city centre the The headquarters of the rising are occupied in the g p o um, on o 'Connell street and uh, You mentioned before um, the Rising as a drama, um, and in fact there there is a a, a sense in which the Rising seems to have been um, deliberately played out in public um, in in full view, and of course um, um, a majority of the organisers of the the Rising and the Military Council actually had been dramatists, and there seems to be no doubt that the Rising is very much intended as um, propaganda. So the the headquarters are centred in the busiest street and in the centre of the busiest street uh, Um, In Dublin, and um, thousands of people turn out day after day to watch what the rebels um, are are doing. Uh, And in fact, people watch um, uh, fights taking place between British Army um, soldiers uh, and rebels. It's it's a remarkably um, kind of public um, occasion. The the rebel strategy is also unusual from a military point of view because um, they march into these large buildings, uh, occupy them, fortify them, uh, and really do nothing. They just wait for the British to come um, uh, with their heavy artillery and so on um, and, uh, and, and shell them out of it. So uh, oh, yeah. it's difficult to see how there's any kind of strategic um, uh, attempt to sort of take the initiative. It's very much um, a gesture.
0: And they don't really attempt to minimize, or maybe this is stating too much, I don't know, they don't really attempt to minimize civilian casualties.
1: They don't seem to have given it very much thought. I mean, some individuals like James Connolly believed that uh, Britain wouldn't use heavy artillery in the centre of, I suppose, what was, could be regarded as this, this, the second great city of the UK. Um, but uh, other Republicans certainly did. Uh, what can be said is that all the, re- the rebel headquarters were and um, the rebel garrisons were located in, in built-up um, city centre areas in, in which uh, mostly um, working-class uh, people lived effectively. The area around the GPO, for example, was effectively um, slums. So the the biggest proportion of people who died in the Easter Rising are civilians. Um, and I think most of those were probably killed by the British Army because they used uh, artillery mm-hmm. and they used um, heavy machine guns. Um, and uh, as the fighting proceeded, the British military basically took the view of, well, anybody who's in that area and hasn't left, um, you know, mm-hmm. c- could be considered um a, a, a target um so uh from, from that point of view i think it's there's a, there's a morally questionable aspect to it on the other hand um it, you know the rebels could never have have hoped to fight the British army in open ground, and the fact that they were able to sort of occupy uh urban streets gave them you know, to a certain extent leveled the odds between hopelessly equipped rebels and professionally equipped um, soldiers. I mean, one example of this would be the, the battle which takes place at Mount Street in which over 200 um, British soldiers and officers are injured or killed by a force, which probably numbered about a dozen mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, volunteers holding strategic areas. So from, from that point of view, it's kind of militarily um, you know, understandable why he did it. By the end of the Rising, when uh, the leaders such as Patrick Pierce actually saw the carnage which had been uh, inflicted on, on the city centre, they seemed to have changed their views, and it's given as one reason for the, for the very prompt surrender at mm-hmm. the end of the period of fighting.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when news of the Uprising uh, spread around Ireland. uh, How did people react? Was it popular?
1: No, it wasn't. Uh, The the, the rebels' accounts themselves are quite clear that, by and large, um, you know, in in, in the capital, they're they're booed at, they're jeered at, they're spat at. Um, In in many cases, during the rising and particularly during the surrender, they're violently assaulted by people. Um, The the reaction around the country seems to have been, um, you know, shock. Uh, and dismay, um, nationalist opinion, as, as, as much as one can 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 speak about, it, seems to be very strongly against the rising, seeing it as at best foolish, but but many would have gone much stronger and seemed as as, as insane or as kind of a, a criminal. Um, so, it, it, the, I mean, this has been a subject of debate for some time, but the witness statements really make clear that, with the exception of some kind of pockets of support here and there, by and large, the average Irish person um, seems to be pretty pretty appalled at what was done. Um, with Rebellions in the past might have been um, a, a great thing about which one could sing, but the actual reality of, of what, what, what happened in Dublin was, was, was pretty shocking. And a lot of people would have said pretty pointless, you know, from a military point of view.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, after, I guess it's five days, uh, they surrender and uh, the British authorities put them all on uh, trial. What exactly happens?
1: Yeah. And. Um, the best thing the British authorities could have done, really, would have been um, to, to deport leaders and um, uh, maybe short sentences for, for most of the rebels, um, they, they found themselves um, uh, uh, arresting um, a large number of rebels, over a thousand of them, um, and uh, they didn't really know what to do with these people. And uh, conventional trials were out really because they didn't really, enough have much evidence um, against them. They just they just arrested large numbers of people mm-hmm. as they as they surrendered. Um, so so it was really not quite clear what they could do with them. They they quickly decided not to use conventional um, law and order. Um, so uh, most of the rebel rank and file were simply deported and interned uh, in the UK. A lot of them were actually released within a year or so. Um, and uh, most controversially, um, those who they could prove were, were leaders or those who they, they felt were leaders uh, were given um, field general court-martials, um, which involved very little kind of legal safeguards, um, and they were um, uh, arrested, tried, and executed um, within a period of a few days. Mm-hmm. Um, so not, a, not another particularly large number of people were executed, um, 15, but but the, the response which that created um, really began to galvanise sort of popular nationalist opinion, um, I, th- I think as much because of the way in which it was in which it was done. And, of course, the, the vital background to all of this, which, which we've touched on, was, was the fact that it was a time of war. So these things could be justified. Um, uh, in fact, there were perhaps even the military imperative in a way which they wouldn't have been if, if a rising had taken place during, during peacetime,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then there's just a remarkable sea change in Irish politics. I, I'm not quite sure I even really understand it. It happened so quickly, but uh, maybe you could describe what happened uh, in the in the, yeah. in the coming couple of years. Yeah, I mean,
1: and. Th- 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 Some accounts uh, suggest that the transformation of opinion was almost instantaneous, that as soon as people like Patrick Pearce were put up against a wall and shot, that that people converted to republicanism. That was probably the case for some people, but by and large, it was was actually a more kind of um, subtle uh, process. Um, What you have is between 1916 and 1918, when the next general election takes place, is a sort of a steady process of events which um, put the British government in a difficult position and which um, increased popular support for republicanism. So there's the execution of the rebels, most obviously. There's the arrest of um, several thousand people, uh, ab- about half of whom would have been innocent in the weeks and months after the Easter Rising. And while some of these were quickly released, uh, the damage was done. Then there's a period of um, military, mil- uh, military rule in Ireland, which, which lasts up to the end of 1916. Um, and as uh, more people get to hear um, the Republican side of things, and they learn about um, the shooting of innocent people by British soldiers during the Rising, and uh, other kind of events. The, 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 the groundswell of opinion begins to to grow, um, and of course, the the, uh, the war effort plays a very important part because um, throughout this period, then um, British policy can continues to be driven by military rather than, than, than uh, political rationale so that, so the British authorities in Ireland which would have been in Dublin Castle which would have been actually fairly moderate they're discredited by the rising and they have to go and they're replaced by a military governor who, who basically does things um, quickly and to a certain degree ruthlessly because that's what militarily makes sense and perhaps the, the best example of the military logic kind of driving events in Ireland uh, would have been the attempt to introduce conscription in 1918, in the, in the spring of 1918. Again, this, from the British point of view, this seems a military necessity because cons- conscription exists in Britain and um, Irish manpower is needed with with, um, the difficulties with the war. But from a political point of view, it's entirely counterproductive and it it, it creates massive popular support um, for republicanism. So 1916 is obviously very, very important. Um, There there may not have been a, a war of independence and a revolutionary movement without it, but it has to be put in that sort of broader context of um, what britain is doing during during the war period which which builds mass support mm-hmm. um, for the first time ever for, for republicanism, and as I said earlier had um, Britain responded in a much more measured way. Had they, for example, not executed the leaders, um, it it seems um, uh, likely that there would have been quite a different um, um, response um, in that period.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the Civil War starts in short order, at least it it starts in 22, is that right?
1: yeah, so um, in, a, in a sense, the, the War of Independence, which is 1919 to 21, mm-hmm. and the Civil War 1922 to 23, are very much um, brought about by the Easter Rising. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for when the prisoners um, are released um, from the Easter Rising and the, the movement begins to reorganise itself, it does so against the background of you know massive political support for republicanism. So there's an end of war general election in um, the end of 1918, which shows that Sinn Fein, the party, which which identified Identifies with what was done in 1916 um, has mass support. It, it, it wins the great majority of seats um, in Ireland. So it's basically as a consequence of that mass support for republicanism and the demand for an Irish Republic, which the British government can never concede you know, for for wider international and military and political reasons that that brings about the slip towards what eventually becomes a a guerrilla war. Mm -hmm. Um, So that takes place 1919 to 21 and it ends with a truce and a treaty in which Britain agreed to give um, dominion independence to Ireland. And again the Easter Rising is is vital here because um, for a section of the republican movement Uh, What Britain are offering is, is a great improvement on Home Rule and it can lead to full independence and they accept it. But for a large section of republicanism, what they had fought for during the War of Independence was what Pierce and his comrades had died for 1916, and that was a full Irish Republic, and for them to accept anything less w- was a betrayal. So the, the, the Easter Rising and uh, its, its sort of um, a moral impact is, is uh, at, at the center of, of the Civil War, um, which of course divides then Irish nationalism for, for decades to
0: come. Mm-hmm, that's right. So uh, let me ask you this. How is the Easter Rising remembered today in the North and the South, if there's any difference? There are monuments and things, aren't there?
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's remembered very differently, north and south, and the way in which it's remembered changes over time. So broadly speaking from the 1920s to the 1950s, um, in, in southern Ireland anyway, the uh, Easter Rising was seen as, I suppose, the equivalent of uh, Independence Day in America or the, or the Bastille in France, <laughs> a fairly uncomplicated good thing to be, to be celebrated. It's where Irish independence came from. Of course in the, in the north because you had a stage in which the majority of political opinion was, was unionist um, you know the, 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 the feeling was, was quite different. So for um, the minority in the north the Easter Rising was obviously a good thing but um, there was no sort of open um, uh, uh, well it was, it was commemorated but it was, the commemoration of the Easter Rising was seen as something subversive whereas commemoration of the Easter Rising was almost something that was mandatory um, by different southern governments in the Mm -hmm. South. Everything changes fundamentally in the 1960s and the 70s. and There's two interconnected reasons for this. Um, one is that um, historians, particularly revisionist historians, come to ask difficult questions about the Easter Rising, such as pointing out, for example, that it didn't have popular support, that maybe there might have been more peaceful methods in which independence could have been pursued. So, so that debate finally begins to take place 50 years after the Rising. But the other factor, which I think is much more important, is that the Troubles breaks out in the North. Um, and you get the emergence of the provisional IRA, which is a movement which only has minority support even amongst the Catholic nationalist community in the north. And it's a movement which, as much as it cares about these things, bases its legitimacy, its, its mandate um, on Irish history, um, and particularly the revolutionary tradition, and, and particularly 1916. And the argument is made that if it was good enough for... People like Pierce to fight against British rule to achieve a United Irish Republic. Then there's no reason why present-day republicans shouldn't do it. And and what that basic argument is very simple, and it's, you know, it's, it's um, there's quite a lot of substantive that argument that really creates problems for the Southern government because the Southern government's celebration of independence is is bound up with the revolutionary violence of 1916, and so the the difficulties in its position of endorsing violence in 1916 but condemning provisional violence, which it sees mm-hmm. as immoral. And a threat to the Irish state itself—that that really gives it gives a massive emotional kind of injection into the revisionist debate, which which ran on and on until the nineteen nineties. Mm-hmm. And then the the final way in which this debate has subsequently changed is, of course, the IRA ceasefire in the nineteen nineties, and it, it it began to become much more acceptable then, particularly in the south. For, for nationalists to re, reclaim that kind of Republican mm-hmm. revolutionary period. One example of this would be the, the, the military parade, which takes place at O'Connell Street um, every Easter. That, that parade stopped in the early 1970s, mm. um, largely because of the Troubles context. And that parade came back for the first time um, in uh, 1996 for the 90th anniversary. And it was you know, largely in the context of um, the ceasefire and um, republicanism becoming a bit more respectable and also a degree of political self-interest, southern republicanism wanting to guard against the inroads made by the northern republican um, Sinn Féin and Britain. so it's kind of complex but certainly one, one can see these, these quite dramatic changes taking place in the legacy of the rising in different periods of time
0: mm-hmm. that's a, that's, I, f- I find all that fascinating let me ask you a, one, one final question and I'll let you go because we've taken up a lot of your time and that is that uh, anyone who's travelled around Ireland or lived there for a long time knows that Um, in the center of most every irish town or city there's a set of streets uh, one of which is always o'connell street and uh, uh, there might be uh, there might be a a wolf tone street or something like that Um, there's no john redmond street anywhere i ever saw Why, why is there no redmond street or is that a ridiculous question
1: no, no, it's not. I mean, I, my street in Bray, where I was born, uh, is uh, David Street, and it's beside um, uh, Parnell Street.
0: Yeah, Parnell uh, Street. There you go. There's another one. Yeah,
1: David and Parnell were, were, were part of the Irish Party constitutional nationalists, but they were they were seen as kind of the respectable end of things because Parnellism was seen as a kind of radical constitutional nationalism, and Republicans looked back at him favorably. Uh, Broadly speaking, um, John Redmond and the Irish party um, tradition was, you know, to a certain extent, they became the enemy for Sinn Féin, um, for Republicans during the period of the Great War. And the fact that the great majority of Irish nationalists had supported constitutional nationalism and that, in fact, 50,000 know, 50, uh, or 30,000 Irishmen had died in the Great War mm-hmm. and... 200,000 Irishmen had fought in the British Army, all this became a bit of an embarrassment yeah. to the Republican state, which basically, you know, saw itself as, as representing the anti-war tradition. So in, from, from, from the 20s right up until the 90s, there would have been a tradition of a kind of amnesia, a bit of embarrassment about constitutional nationalism and about the fact that most Irish nationalists were, were constitutional nationalists. And again, it's with the peace process that that kind of thinking has begun to change and it's become much more acceptable, even, even popular. For Republicans um, to look back and sort of reclaim that that part of the Irish past, and you know to accept that actually things were maybe a little bit more complex than the the simple ways in which we tend to compartmentalise these things uh, in retrospect. But Redmond, uh, I don't I think if you waiting a long time for a Redmond Street, his his, <laughs> his, his, his name still uh, provokes controversy, and he's seen as someone who sends out Irishmen to die yeah, on, on the Somme. Exactly. You know.
0: Yeah. No, I just thought he was a very I'd never really read anything about him before I read your book and I thought he was kind of a fascinating character because he seems to be he has been kind of written out of of the of the story and and maybe I'm wrong about that because I don't know a lot of Irish history but he just seemed like somebody who uh was overtaken by events. Well-intentioned person, probably a good politician but just overtaken by events. I don't
1: I think that's right. And he was a figure who tried to come come up with a middle way between republicanism and between Ireland being part, being part of Britain. And uh, his his fortune rises and falls. And, you know, with, with, with a certain kind of political viewpoint um, at the moment, uh, he, he, his stock is actually rising in because he seems to be someone who's torn with, 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 with compromises. Mm-hmm. And, and because of what's going on in Northern Ireland, we actually are back in a period of, of some sort of constitutional compromises. And maybe people are a little bit more willing to look back in the past and see... Well, you know, maybe there could have been other things could have happened in different ways. And, and, and that's what I hope part of the book will restore in mm-hmm. the sense of, kind of the complexities of the past that existed um, at the time, because well, in, in retrospect, these things seem very simple.
0: Well, it does that, I think, really marvelously. And uh, you uh, uttered the word even-handed uh, earlier in our conversation, and I think your book is very even-handed. I, I came, you know, often when I think about these things, especially ones that uh, end up in bloody violence like this one. Um, you know, I have trouble finding uh, any heroes among any of these people. They were all very brave. I'll give them that. Uh, but uh, it, it seems like uh, cooler heads did not prevail, and that's kind of a sad thing. So uh, anyway, uh, Fergal, thank you very much for being on the show. I should tell our listeners that we've had uh, Fergal McGarry on the show, and we've been talking about his terrific book, The Rising Ireland, Easter uh, 1916. Fergal, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks, Marshall. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Fergal McGarry about his new book, The Rising Ireland, Easter 1916. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.